Not long ago, walking along a country road, I paused to read the wording on some stone monuments nearby. One went something like this. Pause, weary stranger, as you pass by. As you are, so once was I. As I am, so you shall be. Prepare thyself to follow me. Now someone has added to that message on stone the following. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. But the safety valve of humour does not dispose of reality. No one is wise or honest who ignores the fact of death. It stands for judgment day, for giving an account of our stewardship. Life like a checkers board has blacks and whites, privileges and responsibilities. The facts of life include gifts, duties, sin, sorrow, death, judgment. Service, or duty, is the rent we owe for the space we occupy down here. Right, duty, obligation are as fundamental as the dirt on which we stand and the air we breathe. That's why time is so significant to us, but not to animals. We only have so long to prepare for death and the judgment. My friends, for the natural man, is it not true that death is a terrible conflict with no victory at last, a tempestuous sea and no harbour at last, a slippery height and no footing at last, a desperate fall and no bottom? Why is death so terrible? Because we link it with our sins, and our sins seem impossible to cure, and our guilt impossible of removal. Livy told the truth millenniums ago when he wrote, We can neither cure nor endure our vices. And the poet Ovid declared, We know and approve the better and do the worse. Seneca spoke similarly. He said, Men love their vices and hate them at the same time. Matthew Arnold, writing of the time when these men wrote, the early Roman Empire said, On that hard pagan world disgust and secret loathing fell. Deep weariness and sated lust made human life a hell. But this applies to twentieth century also. Indeed, to every century. And to every country, every city, hamlet, home and heart. The tenderest song closes with a sob and it's an autumn wind that rustles in the boughs of spring. On one occasion, C.S. Lewis wrote to a bereaved husband whose marriage had been a prolonged honeymoon, but at the expense of duty to others. Here's what Lewis's letter said. One way or another, the thing had to die. Perpetual springtime is not allowed. You are not cutting the wood of life according to the grain. You are jealous of God. I sometimes wonder whether bereavement is not at bottom the easiest and least perilous of the ways in which men lose the happiness of youthful love. It must always be lost in some way. Every merely natural love has to be crucified before it can achieve resurrection. And the happy old couples who've come through a different death and rebirth have known it too. But too many have missed the rebirth. Lewis went on to say, if we have an appetite for eternity, we've all wed ourselves to be caught up in a society which frustrates our longing at every turn. Half our inventions are advertised to save time, 
the washing machine, the fast car, the jet flight. But for what? Never were people more harried by time, by watches, by buzzers, by time clocks, by precise schedules. Time is our natural environment. We live in time as we live in the air we breathe, and we love the air, but not time. Animals are unaware of time. They're untroubled. Time is their natural environment, but we sense it's not ours. The fish complain of the sea for being wet. If we complain at time, it suggests that we've not always been, or will not always be, purely temporal creatures. It suggests that we were created for eternity. Not only are we harried by time, we seem unable, despite a thousand generations, even to get used to it. We're always amazed at time, how fast, how slow it goes, how much of it is gone. We aren't adapted to it. We're not at home in it. Time was the worst of evils in Pandora's box. But, says Christ, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. What infinite comfort in the second part of that statement, but what inexorable demand in the first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Thus did C.S. Lewis point to the religion of Christ as the only cure for our really great problems, the only cure for guilt and for death and for the judgment. But individually, my friends, you and I have to be really convinced that we actually need that cure. May I remind you today that the greatest writers in all ages have tried to tell us, either in whole or in part, that to get rid of guilt is our chief need. Peter Forsyth wrote, The supreme problem of the world is its sin. Its one need is to be forgiven. And C.E.M. Joad, the British philosopher, he wrote concerning his long sojourn in the wilderness of agnosticism, It is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disappointed. Disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable. Disappointed by the subservience of intellect to emotion by the failure of true socialism to ever arrive, by the behaviour of nations and politicians, by the preference of the masses for Hollywood to Shakespeare and for Mr Sinatra to Beethoven. And above all, we were disappointed by the recurrent fact of war. Thus Joe, the British writer. The literature of the world has ever harped on the themes of guilt and purgation. All of the great classics, even up to modern times, have such themes. The books of Dostoevsky are typical, such books as Crime and Punishment, The Brothers Karamazov. Dostoevsky knew that within every man, even enlightened man, there's a strange streak of perversity, a strain of stubborn irrationalism, an impulse of destructiveness. Educated man, cultured man, civilised man has still the passion to destroy. Yet in the same century as Dostoevsky, Tennyson had hopefully written, Move upward, working out the beast, and let the ape and tiger die. But in the 20th century, man was shocked to find that the ape and tiger had not died. They were very much alive and well, thank you. Perhaps you remember the book by William Golding, The Lord of the Flies, about those shipwrecked schoolboys who became murderous savages. 
Their temporary home and island was boat-shaped. This was to represent the human journey of life that we all take. In the story, you remember the choir boys who'd said, Sir, yes, sir, and who'd worn caps and crosses. They reverted to the role of painted savages, chanting a ferocious litany of hate and blood. Kill the beast, cut his throat, spill his blood, they cried. In Golding's book, the puzzling symbol of the beast is initially a symbol for the primitive fears of the boys, our fears. But ultimately we find Simon saying, maybe there's a beast. What I mean is, maybe it's us. Simon's the first to die in the blind orgy of a ritual murder. Through tears and agonies, another boy, Ralph, he learns the nature of man's essential sickness. The sickness which the best medical book in the world has named as sin and guilt. We all begin life with a simple Pelagian faith in the goodness of man. But is it not true, my friends, that that faith is gradually eroded, not only by the action of others, but by our own incomprehensible behaviour? Do you remember that mathematical genius, Pascal? Centuries ago he wrote this about you and me. What a shimmer then is man, what a novelty, what a monster, what a chaos, what a contradiction, what a prodigy, judge of all things, imbecile, worm of the earth, depositary of truth, a sink of uncertainty and error, the pride and refuse of the universe. It's true, my friends, is it not? Alienation's always a consequence of sin and guilt. In the 20th century, in our loneliness and guilt, we're all displaced persons. We're restless and we're rootless. John Paul Sartre wrote his famous story in Nausea. The hero, of course, is no hero. Antoine Roquentin has no commitments, no family responsibilities, no financial anxieties, and yet he's unutterably depressed. He experiences intermittent spasms of nausea, vertigo, anxiety. Thereby he represents us all. Franz Kafka is the representative writer of our times and his books are filled with terror, loneliness, meaninglessness and the sensation of being caught and being able to do nothing about it. Camus tells us through one of his characters in his book The Fall, you don't have to wait for the last judgment. It takes place every day. It's true, is it not? The past is not dead. Never in this life is it buried and done with. Everything seems irrevocable because the past seems irremediable. The future can only be built upon our errors and follies. How fearful that makes us. It was Browning, remember, that wrote, Fool, all that is, at all lasts ever, past recall, earth changes, but thy soul and God stand sure. God. In that word lies our only hope. There is a secret which if we learn it, instead of waking to say, God, morning, we'll wake and say, Good morning, God. Let me suggest to you that just as a faulty beat in music can be rescued and taken up and woven into a new melody, so God, and only God, our Heavenly Father, 
can transform our situation of sin and guilt. He alone can weave into our sins a pattern that ultimately will shout glory, provided we accept his verdict on sin and ask him to take it away from us. He'll change the pattern and make it something wonderful. And that's what Calvary was all about. Its purpose was to deal with our sin and guilt that otherwise must endure forever, damning each of us always. Now I must admit, my friends, that much that's said by preachers about the cross sounds impractical, irrelevant, like sentimental pap to the average unbeliever. The real issues often do not stand out starkly challenging intelligent decision. No one with sense enjoys making choices amid hazes of obscurity. What is this business after all about Calvary ridding us of guilt and solving death? This vague doctrine concerning a God-man who died for our sins. Whether believers or unbelievers, we have a right to understand this kernel and axis of Christian theory and then to decide concerning its relevance. Remember what we said recently? If it's not true, it doesn't matter. But if it is true, nothing else matters. Let me give you a concrete illustration of the whole thing, of how Christianity claims that Calvary can solve our guilt and indeed all our problems. My story goes back three millenniums, but it's lost none of its pertinence. I want you to think of a certain ancient king whose tragic plight affords a microcosm, a miniature of the greatest problem in the universe. As I look at him, back through the time machine, he's shifting uneasily on his throne as he worries about his two lost sons. One has been murdered by the other. And now the culprit's in exile, while the harrowed father frets over his duty to punish him, the one who's been the apple of his eye. He's a king as well as a father, and that's the rub. His appointed work is to maintain the gulf between right and wrong, to uphold justice and exact the penalty for every instance of violated law. Anarchy throughout the realm would be his fault if judgment were slacked and wrongdoers were permitted to escape scot-free. But now it's his boy who deserves sentence. Mercy and love contend with truth and justice. Through the window, the king perceives one who's evidently a stranger in the city. He's glad to divert his thoughts and wonders who this woman dressed in garments of mourning might be. The question is soon resolved, for the stranger's bent on interviewing her monarch with a plea for help, or so it seemed. Now I'm reading to you from the scripture. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and said, Help, O king. And the king said to her, What's your trouble? She answered, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband's dead. Your handmaid had two sons. They quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to part them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family's risen against your handmaid. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may kill him for the life of the brother whom he slew. And so they would destroy the heir also. They want to quench my coal which is left. And the king said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. The woman answered, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? In giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished son home again. 
for we must needs die. We are as water spilt on the ground that cannot be gathered up again. Yet does God devise means that his banished be not expelled from him? I've been reading to you, friends, from Second Samuel chapter 14. Now, this woman's persuasive speech was addressed not to conscience, but to pity and affection. It aimed at giving effect not to the convictions of duty, but to the promptings of inclination. Glad of any excuse to make the decision he really wanted, David cast the die of royal decree. The word went forth that Absalom could return from exile, unpunished, though he'd broken the law and murdered his brother. Now the years that follow are years of intrigue, as the impenitent prince schemes for his father's throne. No stratagem is considered beneath him as he creates dissatisfaction with his father's rulership throughout the realm. The record seems inevitable. I'm reading from a later passage in Scripture. There came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. Rebellion was rife and civil war was imminent. The complete story may be read in Second Samuel chapters 14 to 18, but it's the conclusion that concerns us now. The decisive battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. It seemed at the end of the day that each tree stood as a monument marking the presence of a corpse or a heap of them. There was there a great slaughter, says Scripture, of 20,000 men. Now Absalom chanced to meet the servants of David, and Absalom was riding upon his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Joab took three darts in his hand, thrust them into the heart of Absalom, while he was still alive in the oak. That was Second Samuel chapter 18. What slew Absalom? What was responsible for the blood of these 20,000 fallen patriots? The answer? Mercy. Mercy slew them. A mercy that was unjustified. Filled the kingdom with blood, bereavement and anguish. An irresponsible pardon brought multiplied sorrow and trouble. Had David punished his son, the rebellion could never have occurred. The king's failure to exact the penalty for his boy's crime wrecked the kingdom. And if God had met the problem of sin as David did, he would have wrecked the universe. Have you ever thought of that, my friend? If God had solved the problem of your guilt and mine, the way David did, just by sheer indulgence, he would have wrecked the universe. This truth enables us to see the real meaning of the cross the heart of what Christians call the atonement. Do you remember the final appeal of the old woman? Really true in essence, but wrongly applied. She said, we must needs die. We are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet doth God devised means, whereby his banished be not expelled from him. To every creature the Creator gave the gift of free will in order that worship and obedience might ever proceed from loving, willing hearts. The abuse of freedom brought to God the same problem that David faced long afterwards. How are justice and mercy to be reconciled? How can peace and truth kiss each other? How can the father of those who become rebels be a true king, as well as a father, upholding right, punishing wrong? How can he forgive and save the sinner, and yet demonstrate that his law is immutable, and that lasting peace and joy come only through perfect obedience. 
Had God decided, like David, to forgive without exacting penalty, as we've said, he would have filled the universe with anarchy. His eternal law would have appeared to all created beings as something optional, rather than as the warp and woof of all true government and all true lasting happiness. When the rebellion of sin transpired, two things were necessary to safeguard all creation as well as to forgive our sins and take away our guilt. One, the law must be vindicated by requiring the punishment for its violation. And two, the rebels must be transformed into law-loving citizens. Now Absalom's forgiveness only confirmed him in impenitence. So David's plan failed. Absalom was a lawbreaker still. But the king of the universe, he needed to forgive his erring sons and daughters in such a manner as to change their hearts and bring them into complete harmony with his will. Therefore the cross, the only solution to guilt. Now the death of Christ was not the arbitrary placing upon an innocent third party, the penalty belonging to another. Oh no, it was the offended God himself personally accepting the guilt of sinners and paying their debt. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Thus and thus only could he be just, and yet the justifier of you and me. God honours the law by exacting the penalty. He transforms the sinner by the melting display of his love. Thus the lost may be saved, and yet the ninety and nine just persons of the sinless universe not endangered. We mean other worlds. As we behold the cross, the primary glimpse of a dying man is replaced by our perception of a suffering God. Love and hatred, good and evil, are revealed by contrast. As the Creator endures what the creature deserves, as we continue to gaze, it becomes apparent that we are all there on that cross. As Adam represented the race in Eden, so Christ, the second Adam, represents humanity at the cross. One died for all, therefore all died, says 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. In Christ, all men legally died and paid the price for their sins. As by the sin of Adam all were ruined, so by the righteous life and vicarious death of the second Adam all were redeemed potentially. Now whosoever will may come. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. He that cometh to God he'll in no means cast out. Now God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because the claims of the righteous eternal law have been met and we have died in our substitute and representative. God won't ask us to pay the price a second time if we abide in Christ. We're complete in him. My friends, if Calvary does not move us, God has no other resource. Here is found the logic and the dynamic of Christianity. To refuse it is to do despot to one's own soul. But glad-hearted acceptance begins life eternal. Once we're convinced that God loved us enough to die for us, we cannot help but love him and do the right. What is involved in responding to the call? The call of Christ. What's involved in the experience? Only this, we discover that God loves us, even though we're guilty, even though we're bad, even though we're weak. What is love's nature? Let me quote you a passage from the life of Helen Keller. She writes, One day, while I was playing with my new doll, Miss Sullivan put my big rag doll into my lap also, and she spelt D-O-L-L and tried to make me understand that D-O-L-L applied to both dolls. 
Earlier in the day, we'd had a tussle over the words M-U-G and W-A-T-E-R. Miss Sullivan had tried to impress it upon me that M-U-G is mug and that W-A-T-E-R is water, but I persisted in confounding the two. In despair, she dropped the subject for the time, only to renew it at the first opportunity. I became impatient at her repeated attempts, and seizing the new doll, I dashed it upon the floor. I was keenly delighted when I felt the fragments of the broken doll at my feet. I hadn't loved the doll. In the still dark world in which I lived, there was no strong sentiment or tenderness. I felt my teacher sweep the fragments to one side of the hearth. I had a sense of satisfaction that the cause of my discomfort was removed. She brought me my hat. We walked down the path to the well house. Someone was drawing water. My teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water. First slowly, then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. Suddenly I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten. A thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. Everything had a name. Everything had a name. As we returned to the house, every object which I touched seemed to quiver with life. On entering the door, I remembered the doll I had broken. I felt my way to the hearth and picked up the pieces. I tried vainly to put them together. Then my eyes filled with tears, for I realized what I'd done. Everything has a name. And everything is an object of love, God's love, and therefore of ours. It's the nature of love to individualize. My friend, whatever your plight, whatever your guilt, God loves you. If you'd been the only sinner, God would have died for you. Believe, receive the cross, and my friend, you stand right now, and for as long as you believe, you stand not guilty.